Yeah. So, um, how do you how do you fit that in at, at the pharmacy? So, you know, you've already got um, a lot going on. You've you've got a large uh, retail front end. You, you know, really neat boutique OTC area. You guys are doing compounding immunizations. Uh, you're doing a lot. You mentioned you have a large team, but how do you how do you really coordinate all of that? I know the appointment based model has to has to accommodate that that level of care, but uh, you know how how did you guys approach that? Yeah, I think with just clinical services in general, um, having someone like me that is specifically focused on clinical services, I'm giving specific time during the week to just focus on those types of services um, and then specific block time, you know, to offer them to patients and offer the classes. So we have different pharmacists that have taken on different roles in different sectors to be able to focus on that one thing to do it well. So we have a pharmacy team leader that's focused on workflow management and making sure that's the most efficient uh, that it can be and that everything is going well there. We have a compounding pharmacy manager and that's uh, Wayne himself, but he does everything with the lab, making sure everything with that is going well. So I think um, kind of dividing those roles and having different pharmacists take over different uh, responsibilities. Uh, and then we meet once a week to come together to share what we're learning in our different aspects and how we can um, share ideas and, and make different things better. So I think that that has been a good approach is just having um, enough staff and a pharmacist to give each of us the time to do what we need to do in our roles, but then having that time where we come together once a week uh, to share different things that are that are happening to make each of those sectors better has been what's made it work so far for sure. Gotcha. So um, kind of a two-part question. You, you mentioned uh, that somebody had an improvement to your MedSync program earlier. Um, so definitely want to know what that is and how that fit in. But then also, you know, how do you identify these opportunities? So if you have a patient um, that maybe, you know, gets a, a new, um, you know, uh, chronic disease state medication on their profile, you know, is that something that you guys recognize at MedSync and then, you know, trigger that kind of clinical follow-up or what? what's the workflow for making sure that you're offering that care? Yeah. So I think to answer your question, we just kind of have to go down the journey of the MedSync. That has been um, pretty much, like I said, a journey. We have tried out um, probably three or four different MedSync uh, protocols, procedures throughout a year's time. And a lot of different things didn't work where we weren't able to provide that level of care um, with looking at chronic disease state management, where we were behind, uh, where we weren't growing our SYNC program, where our uh, technicians were really stressed. Um, so I think um, I think that could be helpful, I guess, to just go through what that looked like for us and where we are uh, now, which is a completely uh, different spot. We've actually reached 50% prescription volume with sync, which oh, wow. has been a goal for a long, long time. Um, and I think the new the new program that we have um, has allowed us to do that. So I can kind of talk through, I guess, a little bit of what that looked like before and what it looks like now. Um, if that would be, yeah, helpful. yeah. T tell me what didn't work and then tell me, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me how you fixed it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, I think part of it comes to is that I am newer. So I'm just like, thank goodness I have a really uh, forgiving team that has allowed me to just, just try a lot of different things. And, 
Um, so I would say the first the first uh, thing that we had whenever I came into the clinical services role, we had one technician that was managing the entire sync program, which was fine because we had enough patients that she could um, that she could manage herself, but we wanted to grow to get to fifty percent. So as we grew our patient base, we found out quickly that one person was not enough to manage all of these new people that we were adding to sync. So we ended up adding two more technicians and we had three uh, sync technicians that we split all of our sync patients into thirds and they would manage those patients. We, um, which was going okay, but again, because the health coaches were managing their own specific subset of patients that added a little bit of stress to regular workflow, because if that person wasn't there during the day, or if they were off and that patient had a question, nobody else in the pharmacy knew anything about that person. That one technician knew everything about them um, and nobody else knew anything. So that created a little bit of um, tension there with uh, efficiency and being able to to help the patient when needed. Um, but then we ended up having some staffing changes, which ended up with us only having two sync technicians in um, our sync program, and they split their patients in half. And that is really when we, I would say, hit the rock bottom of sync because uh, we had a lot of patients and we had two sick technicians who knew their patients forwards and backwards, which had benefits. I mean, we uh, those sick technicians created very valuable relationships with, with their patients. Uh, they were the only technicians in the pharmacy, the only people that were talking to those specific subset of people. They were learning things about them that um, otherwise we may not have learned because they were talking to the same people every mm-hmm. month, creating those relationships. So with that aspect, we liked it. I mean, we liked that we were growing relationships with our patients, but uh, there was a, a large amount of burnout among the two sync technicians because, like I said, like they couldn't feel like they could take off. They couldn't feel like they could take a vacation um, because when they did, they knew that if something happened with one of their patients, which at this point we're going to, you know, they're they're having 400 patients that are their own, so that's a lot of people to have for one person to manage, and then if you know, one of those 400 people have a question the day that they're not there, which is likely because that's a lot of people. We wouldn't know what to do. We'd have to contact them on their day off um, and they just wouldn't feel like they would be able to uh, to take yeah. any time off. But and, and there, there's only so many notes. There's only so much room, I guess, in the sync notes to really give that full picture. I mean, you, you can document and document, but I, I guess, you know, I can, I can see where, where that's not very scalable to have that level of uh, of, of care. Yeah. And the way that the workflow model worked, I mean, for sure, the sync notes were were helpful, but we had a workflow model where if someone called and it was that person's sync person, nobody else in the pharmacy was allowed to take that call. Like we went Ah, to that, that, that's where the issue came is because we wanted that specific person to have that relationship. But that's, yeah, that's where there was some disconnect there. And then, um, we saw our accuracy and our efficiency, um, suffer because of that too, because it was a lot of patients they were trying to take on for two people that were only part-time in the, the sync role. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we were for sure having a lot of, um, issues as you can imagine. So that is what didn't work. Um, (laughs) as you can kind of hear from lacking efficiency, accuracy, all that kind of stuff. But, 
luckily, one of our other, uh, it, she was actually one of our workflow technicians, but she is just someone that has really awesome ideas. Um, she came in and said, hey, what if you didn't have uh, each health coach have separate patients? What if you incorporated two more part-time health coaches, which we're now, you know, I'm now using different terminology. We're calling them health coaches, kind of separating them even more, giving them kind of a different clinical title. We have, uh, she said, why don't we do those two people? They're the two main health coaches, but then we have two backup health coaches that can answer questions if they're not there. And instead of having our patients split, all of the patients are going to be together and each day they're going to split the patients in half. So maybe, you know, maybe the one, one of our girls isn't talking to the same person every single month, but there's still only a group of four people that are talking to that patient. So there still is relationship building there, but there's, uh, we're able to improve our efficiency, accuracy, all of that. And ever since we switched to that system, it has been just a complete game changer. We've been able to add patients without uh, compromising accuracy and efficiency. Um, and that, yeah, that I feel like that model so far has been working out the best that we've had, had. Yeah, yeah, definitely seems like that would make that a little bit more flexible. Um, so it, I guess everybody in that case also kind of has the, the same playbook on, all right, here's what to do when we see this, right? If there's, you know, a new a new medication added, how, you know, is there a specific protocol to make sure that those patients are invited to the boot camp or, you know, somebody's going to take that patient aside and, and go over the opioid pledge, right? Like, like, how do you handle those situations to make sure that it's consistently followed through? Yeah. So notes are a big thing for us, having notes and the critical comments, having notes in the sync comments. So, um, for example, we're part of CPSN's uh, UPMC asthma program. So anytime um, we have one of those eligible patients that's also a sync patient, I will put in the sync notes for um, that person to do the asthma questionnaire with them. So we're not repeating service, but we're providing our med sync call and then offering um, the UPMC asthma service so that I can send off the e-care plan for that. Or if there's someone that needs an opioid pledge, uh, that is something that's more down to our will call end. So maybe we're putting a point of sale comment in saying when this person picks up their medication, make sure you review the opioid pledge with them. So it's uh, making notes at, you know, for whoever is going to be the best person to accomplish that job that I think that's helped us. Um, yeah, helped us with that for sure. So Tell me a little bit about the opioid pledge. If somebody is listening and they're like, opioid pledge, it sounds like just a kind of a standardized thing the way we, you named it. Uh, but maybe that's something that not every pharmacy is currently doing. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the opioid pledge was part of a flip the pharmacy change package. So um, we can talk a little bit more about that too. But with the um, change package with Flip the Pharmacy, they would give us a breakdown of what that month's focus was going to be on and different tasks that we could do um, to make the pharmacy more clinically focused. So one of those was to create an opioid pledge. And that basically means that it has um, some different bullet points that show what the pharmacy is responsible for and then also what the patient is responsible for. So it's uh, laying out for the patient that uh, if they're picking up an opioid medication and this is for 
chronic opioid management. So if we see if someone's getting a 30-day supply and they've gotten, I would say, one or two fills of a 30-day supply, that's when we're giving them the pledge. And that's outlining that uh, the pharmacy is responsible for checking the PDMP, the pharmacy is responsible for making sure that the dosing is appropriate, um, that everything on the prescription is legally correct. And then it's uh, saying uh, exactly what we are expecting of our patients. So uh, we're saying patients are responsible for keeping their medications from getting lost or stolen. They're responsible for not asking for their fill more than three days early. That's our, our cutoff. Um, they're responsible for getting all of their controlled medications at one pharmacy. Um, so we have, I, I would say, maybe 10 different bullet points that we have them read, and then they sign the pledge, and then they also sign whether or not they have a Narcan. And if they do not, we will always recommend to fill a Narcan, Narcan on the spot for them. Um, then oh, wow. we, yeah, we'll take that e-care plan. We will, uh, scan it into the patient's documents and then, or take the opioid pledge, scan it into the patient's documents. And then I'll send an e-care plan off to CPESN documenting that we did the opioid education and that we offered Narcan. Um, so there's, it sounds a, like a lot, but it really doesn't take that much time. We've kind of gotten to uh, a groove of doing it and everyone has just been able to kind of incorporate that into workflow now, but um, it's something that we do that I think protects both us and the and the patients. In 2017, uh, a a law in Washington State went into effect that allows farm community pharmacists to um, uh, basically participate in as medical you know in, in medical billing uh, for any clinical services. Um, so it's that provider status that. Uh, that we'd, we'd all been seeking, uh, we finally had that mechanism to do it. Um, and so we jumped on it um, and uh, went through the, um, you know, the, the uh, credentialing and contracting process and um, were able to contract with a number of the uh, large commercial health plants uh, in the area. And we'd already started our prep clinic um, and, uh, it was, it was kind of a, a different model, uh, from what it is today. Um, and we adapted it around this opportunity with, uh, um, with provider status billing. And so our prep clinic, uh, is, uh, unique. It's a pharmacist driven clinic. Um, and it actually started, uh, as a residency project. We have a community residency program. And uh, our resident and one of our clinical pharmacists uh, came up with this concept of providing PrEP. And this was at a time when nobody was doing PrEP. Um, and nice. uh, they, they pitched it to us as a, as a concept for a project and sounded amazing. So we, we ran with it. And um, so it's all pharmacist driven. Everything happens in the pharmacy. Uh, so somebody interested in uh, HIV prevention, they schedule an appointment uh, and they come in and meet with a pharmacist. Uh, we do all of their labs in the pharmacy. Um, and uh, if, if uh, appropriate, they're initiated on PrEP. Uh, and all of this happens in one visit in about an hour. Uh, so we call it one-step PrEP. It's uh, one of those things that we've just been able to um, you know, find ways to remove all of the barriers uh, to patient access and make it really easy for people. And uh, it's it's been absolutely phenomenal. 
And it's, it's grown to the point now um, that we're actually able to bill for our time and not worry about the reimbursement on the, the product, um, that it is fully self-sustaining and uh, we're actually building and expanding out just clinical uh, services um, at this point um, because we've, we've got a model that works. So it's, uh, it is possible. <laughs> that is so that is so cool man because that's like really the ideal scenario uh, I know so many pharmacies across the country would just you know are saying see this could work we we can take so much burden off of the healthcare system we can you know we can move that burden over here pharmacists are trained to do that we have those connections in the community you know put me in coach um but up there in Seattle, you guys have been able to really take that model. So if anybody outside of the world of pharmacy is watching this podcast, they're, you know, they may not realize that pharmacists, even though they're trained in a lot of states, a lot of areas, can't use their training to provide those services that they could provide so well. Um, and even when you have pharmacies that do, a lot of times they're offering those services and not being reimbursed for them. So you know, it's really like the the pinnacle of that, you know, operating at the top of your license where you're performing those labs, you're you're taking those clinical results and documenting, uh, e-care planning, providing the prescriptions that accompany that um, use case. And then, you know, really, it's like you said, that one-stop shop. So I guess two-part question, you know, where do you see that moving forward uh, in your community? I know there's some other areas that you can you can apply that but then you know um what what do you think the holdup is in other states that haven't granted that uh provider status yeah well um as far as other states go i i know that's i mean there have been a lot of great efforts around the country and and other states are starting to um to see some progress there and i, I know there's a handful of other states now that have similar um, similar laws on the books. So I think we've got some, some good model legislation out there now. Um, so it's just a function of staying engaged with <laughs> your legislative efforts uh, and, uh, you know, partnering with organizations that are going to support that messaging. Um, you know, we, we had great partners in, you know, the, the schools of pharmacy here in Washington state um, and, uh, you know, the Washington State Pharmacy Association really led that charge. Um, but, you know, supporting those efforts, supporting your professional organizations so they can get that work done. But it's coming. It's not coming as fast as it should, but uh, we're getting there. And I think we've got some really good examples of how we can provide collaborative services to our community that, that you know, improve outcomes uh, reduce costs. And um, as far as where we're going with this, uh, it's always a great question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but um, the, there's, uh, you know, we're still putting energy into prep, but I think there's, you know, just again, working with public health, I think there's so many opportunities um, where we can do things that are collaborative, you know, that uh, are going to, uh, engender the support of the healthcare community. So, uh, hepatitis C is kind of our next big effort. Um, 
and you know I'm still very much interested in uh, overdose prevention efforts. So um, with with some of the populations that we work with, all of these things are sort of coalescing, and so we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we take what we do and take it out further into the community? Um, so we're working with uh, again, I mentioned. You know some of the local organizations here that are providing supportive housing um, as they transition people from homelessness uh, into supportive housing that have some form of integrated health care taking our pharmacists and you know embedding their services within these organizations um, to to kind of expand our reach and uh, expand the offerings that we're providing in the pharmacy taking it to the point of need uh, so that's kind of my vision for where where some of this is headed um, but uh, yeah it's uh, uh, I, I think there's plenty of opportunities out there um, but you have to be willing to look in non-traditional places to find them I think yeah yeah absolutely I think you're I think you're right on there where you know when you when you look at a lot of these problems they do kind of compound on each other sometimes and and being there in the community, treating those, you know, those root causes, those social determinants that, are, you know, you know, are going to lead to uh, other challenges is, is really the key. Um, and I think, like you said, too, once you, you know, when, once you have other states who are looking at legislation, having those successful use cases, you know, saying Kelly Ross can do it, here's the difference it made in their community, you know, so... Are you able to work with any of your, you know, um, local governing bodies and and show them the fruits of your uh, of your efforts and kind of say, you know, here's here's where the rubber meets the road and 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 here are some statistics on how we've made that positive change. Yeah, it's all about the data at the end of the day, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, we've we've done that. Uh, you know, we, we've uh, done that both with our, um, you know, some of our uh, naloxone efforts. And, you know, that, that's where some of those partnerships really come in, uh, come into play um, because public health really has an interest in, in these issues. And they, <laughs> you know, they often have the resources to do that. Um, we work very closely with the University of Washington School of Pharmacy um, you know, we're, uh, uh, we're all, <laughs> my partners and I are all alums. Uh, we ha have a lot of UW pharmacists here, um, and, uh, we're preceptors. Um, so we do, you know, do a lot of training. So having that close organization with, uh, school of pharmacy, um, I think has, has helped with some of those efforts. Um, but you're right. You, you've gotta, you've gotta be able to prove that what you're doing really does make an, make an impact um, and uh, finding ways to, to track that and present it is key. Another thing that you've done outside of the PrEP program uh, is really just focusing on medication coaching. So again, taking that, um, you know, beyond medication, but really understanding and lifestyle changes. Um, so how have you kind of seen that work out in your community? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that's something that all pharmacists uh, are endeavoring to do in, in one form or another. And, um, and again, we we just we, we try and find novel ways to do that. And um, 
one program that I think is uh, um, really remarkable has come through a relationship with our um, area agency on aging, uh, Seattle Aging and Disabilities. Um, and this has been a relationship we've, you know, we've been developing, I think, since I was in pharmacy school. And it started with uh, a case manager calling up and asking me if we could do medisets. And I'm like, yeah, we do medisets. And um, like, oh, could you do them in this situation? I'm like, yeah, we could do that. And we'll, we'll deliver it. And, you know, it, it started as simple enough, um, but it's grown uh, and evolved into something completely different um, where it has nothing to, we actually don't dispense any medications uh, for clients that we're partnered with through aging and disabilities, but uh, we've, we've contracted uh, with uh, King County um, to provide uh, what's called the Senior Drug Education Program. And so um, pre-COVID, <laughs> Uh, a pharmacist would actually go out to um, uh, a, uh, she'd be assigned buildings um, that were operated by this group. Um, and it might be SHAG is one of them, um, but there's, you know, every community has something like this. Sure. Uh, but uh, they're, you know, we're able to contract to cover the pharmacist's time to go out and provide uh, group coaching. Uh, around medication-related issues, uh, fall prevention, uh, you name it, all of those topics that pharmacists are experts at, uh, and uh, provide classes as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching, medication reviews, um, uh, and doing all these off-site uh, at these uh, different buildings has been uh, very well received, um, and we know it's making an impact, um, and we've been able to, to figure out a way to sustain that over time. That was another one that we had to pivot during the pandemic and, and figure out how to do all of this stuff uh, remotely. And again, that, that's where that, you know, helping educate seniors on how to use some of this technology was was challenging. But, sure. uh, you know, finding ways to, to make that happen. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, I think that's one example of, of, you know, how we've been able to. Um, take that traditional medication coaching concept, take it into the patient's home um, where they're most comfortable to receive that information. And you, you learn a lot more as a provider uh, when you can meet somebody on their terms. Uh, and, uh, and I think you can have a bigger impact when you can see how they live. They're more comfortable um, talking to you about their medication challenges. And, and at the end of the day, you can have a better interaction. Oh yeah, just having you know having somebody there where that person is at every day, you may pick up on you know so many pieces of information, so many pieces of the puzzle that you just couldn't have seen otherwise. You know, um, I, I I love there's a what one of the early podcasts we had Joe Williams who talked about uh, you know the difficulty in just getting uh, in and out of their driveway because there is a a limb that needed to be cut down. So. You know, this is a, a small community adaptation, but he showed up with a chainsaw, <laughs> you know, and took that limb down for him. But, you know, those are the kind of things that you you really can't see. Is, is there like a, you know, medication storage issue? Is there a slip or a step or, you know, all of those things are just hard, hard to really understand if you're not there where they're at. Yep, exactly. This, I think, has been 
you know, such a great opportunity for pharmacists to really flex their clinical muscles and show how we can make an impact on the the greater community population health. Yeah, it's been, uh, you know, it seems like this comes up in every <laughs> every conversation, not just every podcast, but like it's hard not to talk about um, because it is such a, a big elephant in the room. But it's been neat to see that silver lining of how pharmacists could step up and really be noticed for their role and, and how they can affect healthcare and those, you know, those big, big differences they can make in their community. And to see so many of those pharmacists out there like figuring it out because it's kind of been the wild west with this COVID uh, immunization process from, you know, day one, really. But it's been neat to see the pharmacists who are out on that that front line to secure, you know, that super cold storage and, uh, you know, get signed up with the, the correct agencies to be able to get the immunization and then document. It's, it's been wild. Yeah. And even, at, you know, I remember last year at the beginning of the pandemic, my husband and I were in Cairo, Egypt, when the pandemic broke out. And we were, so I was speaking at the Arab International Pharmacy Conference in Cairo. We flew down to Luxor. We did the Valley of the Kings, like just, you know, was enjoying Egypt. But um, at that time, this was like March 6th, around then in 2020. And the only channel on TV that was in English was the BBC. So we had been watching the BBC and Italy was shutting down. Oh, gosh, yeah. The only places that were open was pharmacies and grocery stores was pretty much it. And we were starting to get nervous. Like, are we going to get stuck in Egypt with, you know, I was pregnant again with our third child. And our other two kids were at home with my mom and my husband's mom. And uh, we were, you know, we were really thinking what, What's going to happen? But I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, just being so proud that, um, you know, that pharmacies were really being recognized as such an essential part of daily life that even during the, the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was shut down, pharmacists were still there to hold the front lines. And, you know, that's something that I'm going to continue to tell that story for the rest of my life until pharmacists get the recognition and get the provider status that they deserve. Yeah. So going going back towards the MTM area, it really seems like that was like a like a shift in thinking of somebody outside the pharmacy walls recognizing, hey, here's where all the the savings are. This is where the prevention lies. This is where the boots meet the ground, and we need to incentivize this. We need to, you know, use this tool better. And so, you know, when when you first see these other entities, like that's that's got to be really encouraging for the the profession to be like, yes, we told you, <laughs> you know, like we we've been trained on this. This is what we're passionate about. This is what we've been doing for years and not getting paid for. Um, so. It's been neat to see that grow into like the documentation that we have now, where we have new uh, new standards coming out for you know e-care plans, where it's really quantifying that scope of work. So, like, how do you how do you see that that ability to quantify your efforts and and document 
like what you've done and how it's had those positive effects? Like, where do you see that uh, kind of pushing pharmacists to in the next, I don't know, five years or two years? Yeah. So I have, there's three predictions that, that I have for the next 10 years or so. One is that really pharmacists are going to come out on the forefront of preventative services. You know, I see functional medicine, integrative medicine, the shift from, you know, being 100% reliant on modern medicine for our preventative services to this holistic, um, you know, that's been on the fringe, you know, the acupuncture and the nutrition and some of the stuff that we've seen in Eastern medicine for a long time. So I'm actually working on my master's in Ayurvedic medicine right now because I see there's so much opportunity that, that we can remove some of the obstacles and help our bodies heal themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's my first prediction is really around pharmacists becoming um, the go-to source for preventative health. The second would be less reliance on dispensing for revenue. So with the, you know, shifting to the clinical services, the e-care plans, these opportunities for billing in other ways, I think that our business model will become more diversified, which I see is a good thing. And then the third uh, big shift that I see happening in the next 10 years is pharmacists being embedded in ambulatory care clinics. So working with doctors, just like, you know, my mom's a nurse practitioner. So I remember this was probably almost 20 years ago now, and she was going through her master's program and she cannot type on a computer at all. So I was in high school typing up her master's program notes and all of her essays because she would just write them on her, you know, notebook paper. And then she would like make me type them up for her because I could type so much faster than her. And so, you know, 20 years ago, no one had heard of a nurse practitioner in a physician's office. No one had heard of a physician's assistant. The next 10 years, my hope is that, and and I do think that it will happen because I talk to physicians and clinics all the time who are asking me, you know, where do I find these clinical pharmacists that can help us with our quality metrics? We had kind of touched on adherence and star ratings. When you start digging into the quality metrics that the physician's office has to meet, CMS passed new legislation in 2017 called MACRA, and that act was basically creating quality benchmarks for ambulatory care uh, clinics. So there's two tracks that they could do in this quality payment program. And it's pretty much all based on patient outcomes and performance. So if their patients are outside of their A1C goal, these physicians are going to get dinged, you know, come two years down the line when CMS starts looking at their data and they're saying, I mean, you've been seeing this patient for, you know, four years and their A1C is still outside of where we want it to be, you know, what gives. And I think having the pharmacist there to step in and ask some different questions of the patient and, you know, be able to spend more time with them talking about, 
you know, is it lack of adherence or is it, uh, you know, is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it other medications interacting and playing a role with this? There's so many opportunities, I think, because pharmacists are, we're trained in a completely different way. I like to say that physicians are really trained to diagnose and pharmacists are trained to manage, you know, manage these chronic conditions. And so some of my clients now are working with collaborative physicians uh. in these you know, collaborative business agreements, collaborative practice agreements to be able to offer chronic care and remote physiologic monitoring services remotely for these for their local collaborative physicians. And it's really, it's been a win-win because pharmacists, even though we don't have provider status, we have these opportunities to make an impact on patient outcome, which translates to hundreds of thousands of dollars for the clinic down the line when you look at quality (laughs) benchmarks. So it's like the, yeah, it's like the, the Zig Ziglar quote where um, you can have everything you want in life if you help other people get what they want. Exactly. And it's, I don't think he was talking about healthcare or medicine, but, you know, I, I think for the pharmacy, their value really lies in, in that exactly, that, that win-win scenario. But I've, I feel like the pharmacists have been somewhat um, like in a, in a silo. They're doing these amazing things and not – um, communicating that or, or passing that with the other members of the equation. So, you know, how do you, how do you increase that communication? How do you get that buy-in from a physician where it's like, Hey, you're trying to reach these goals. You're getting pinged on this. That's exactly what I can help with. Um, you know, how, how do you start that collaboration? Yeah, so this was really, you know, what we were going to focus on for this converting these free consultations into clients, whether your client, your potential client is a patient who may be interested in your functional medicine program or a physician, a local physician that you want to go talk to about a collaborative, you know, remote patient monitoring program. But getting Getting comfortable with selling and just by knowing a few of the frameworks that we talk about for selling um, can really help you to not necessarily persuade, but just to help other people get what they want. And you can also, you know, be able to be, you know, grow your revenue and and grow your clinical services and really generate demand for pharmacist-led services in this way, just by knowing how to talk to people about you know, about their needs. So there's there's four A's that we teach in the Pharmapreneur Academy, which is you, you know you start with asking. You just ask what you know what are you struggling with? What what kind of results are you looking to get? Um, if you're talking with a patient, what are your health goals? If you're talking with a physician, what quality metrics are you reporting on this year? just trying to figure out their pain points and then, you know, assessing, is there a way I can maybe help this person before um, agreeing upon what the service could actually look like, what that program 
would actually look like, and then finally accepting and making an offer for that arrangement. So I think most of the time we want, we think selling because it's such a subtle art. Um, we think selling is going in and handing someone a flyer and waiting for them to call us back or like doing your pitch and expecting to get, you know, your phone blowing up. And it's it's really more about relationship building and creating a customized program for the clients you're working with so that they can feel like their needs are priority number one. So do you have like a um, any tips for like preparing that conversation? So, you know, if I have a fantastic pharmacy software in my pharmacy that allows me to run, you know, great reports, you know, is that something that you would do ahead of time is maybe look at that prescriber in your system, see what kind of medication, see what kind of uh, are there trends with therapeutic classes or, or disease states that you could really kind of bring those tailored solutions on step one or do you kind of put that later in line? Yeah. So that might be like a great just icebreaker kind of question for, for that position to call them and say, Hey, I've got this fantastic pharmacy software. I can run a report on pretty much anything that you could possibly want. What, what are some challenges that you guys are dealing with? You know, it may be, it may not be with managing diabetic patients. Maybe it's, um, it's with COPD patients and you can, really isolate and run reports for people who would be a good fit. So, you know, you can imagine if you could run a report that shows a physician what patients they have, what uh, medications they're on, that they're outside of goal, but then you could offer that physician a, a collaborative opportunity to where your pharmacy is helping them manage this patient's care, get their, get their, uh, you know, COPD or diabetes or whatever it is under control. And they can get paid additionally for this service. That's what chronic care management is. And it's a 20 minute non face to face clinical service once a month. You get reimbursed. I think average national reimbursement is around $42. It has to be billed through the physician's MPI, and it has to be um, consented by the patient. So they have to sign consent that they're interested in this service. But when you think about it, if you have a MedSync program, you probably already are calling these people and spending 20 minutes a month working on their medicines. So to me, that it's just a win-win situation that, hey, pharmacists are already doing this, and then you get a collaborative provider on board, and you can get this patient the outcomes that they're interested in, you know, by asking what their quality metrics are. You create a, a you know, a plan, a customized calendar that your pharmacy, you know, even technicians can be involved in this, calling the patient, just getting set up for prior authorizations and refills, all of that counts mm. as dedicated clinical staff time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more pharmacy professionals like you.